It's uh, my privilege to introduce to you our, um, we have a guest uh, preacher today. I'm excited for you to meet Brett Kunkel. We actually went to Biola together about 25 years ago, and so uh, we're starting to get on that older age. <laughs> but just starting, I know some of you look at me like, no, buddy, no. Uh, and I accept that. Um, but uh, yeah, at Biola together, and then so fun to see how God has used him as uh, about 25 years involved in different, like from youth ministry to working for Stand to Reason, uh, and really helping shore up young people in their biblical, Christ-centered worldview, and uh, really and equipping parents and other influencers in that. He's then started something called Maven, which uh, is his own ministry, really helping to do that. Uh, I'd encourage you to grab your notes it's in your bulletin. You can see a little bit more about him and some of the books he's written and stuff like that. But I think as we look into Ecclesiastes with what's the point of wisdom, we thought Brett will be perfect. So let's give a warm welcome to Brett Kunkel. Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Solomon writes this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain." Now, that is a pick-me-upper, isn't it? Uh, If you were here last week and heard Pastor Matt, we really, in Ecclesiastes, are continuing this this kind of cynical uh, response in in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? There's this cynicism here. In fact, when we highlight what uh, Solomon has just outlined about wisdom, uh, wisdom and knowledge, this is what he says. He says... The, the, the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is a grievous task to be afflicted with. <laughs> All is vanity and striving after the wind. When it comes to wisdom and knowledge, what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. This also is striving after wind. There is much grief. It results in increasing pain. Now, does that motivate you now to want to pursue wisdom and knowledge, right? Now, for some of us, we read this, we read Ecclesiastes, and and there's parts of this that ring true, right? 
particularly maybe for a parent, when we read something like, uh, in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain, for those of us who are parents, we, we see that, right? We've experienced that. One of the most painful experiences for a parent is watching your kids make decisions that you think are foolish decisions, walking away from wisdom that maybe they've grown up with and then suffering the consequences. So while there's cynicism here, we also think there's truth. But is this any way to motivate us to pursue wisdom and knowledge? Or, at first glance, it seems that Solomon is actually, is, is he dismissing the pursuit? He's saying at the end of the day, it's all vanity. At the end of the day, it's striving after oh, the wind. And so, we're kind of off the hook, right? But of course, now we, we look at something like our church. We look at uh, all the activities of a church. The, the preaching on Sunday morning seems to be aimed at wisdom and knowledge. The Sunday school classes, the, the midweek classes, the Bible studies, these all seem to be aimed at wisdom and knowledge. So what's going on here? Uh, how do we respond to the tension and the cynicism that we have in this passage? Well, have you ever, have you ever misinterpreted a, uh, a, a chunk of human commun- communication before? Anyone ever misinterpret something before that someone said? Yeah. Okay, so when we, uh, uh, through our experience of misinterpreting uh, human communication, we come to know that there are several different ways that human beings primarily uh, misunderstand or misinterpret a, a chunk of human language or communication. Number one is we take it out of context, right? Or we don't pay attention to the necessary context that helps us to understand what is being said. Let's illustrate this for a second here. Let's say uh, uh, Pastor Eric was uh, out in the hallway uh, this morning at 830 and he heard Pastor Matt, and he heard Pastor Matt say, Brett is sick. And so he takes that little, that, that little chunk of language, that little phrase, and he goes running over to Trevor and the sound team and says, hey guys, Brett is sick. We are going to have to change things up. He's not going to be here teaching this morning, right? And so Eric and the team, they start uh, making the necessary arrangements, and then I walk in the door. And, and Pastor Eric says, wait, I thought you were sick. I said, no, I wasn't sick. So well, Pastor Matt said you were sick. And so what does Eric do? He goes back to Pastor Matt and says, Matt, uh, I, you said Brett was sick. We've been making different arrangements, but Brett's here. What's going on? And Matt says, Brett's sick. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, gosh, you misinterpreted what I said. You took it out. You didn't hear the rest of our conversation. You have to take the phrase, Brett is sick, and put it into the larger context, right? The larger communication. And so what Matt is going to do to, to, to uh, clear up this miscommunication is going to say, oh, we were talking about uh, Brett's surfing abilities. I went out and surfed with him yesterday. Man, Brett is sick. Right? <laughs> and so context is key to understanding the meaning of any chunk of communication. Here's a, another example of taking something out of context. A little kindergartner showed up at school with a picture that has apparently a picture of her mom with people surrounded holding dollar bills, and it says, when I grow up, I want to be like mommy, right? The teacher, without the proper context, is likely to misinterpret that picture and that chunk of communication. So thankfully, the parent writes a letter to the teacher Dear Mrs. Jones, 
I wish to clarify that I am not now, nor have I ever been an exotic dancer. I work at Home Depot and told my daughter how hectic it was last week before the blizzard hit. I told her we sold out every single shovel we had, and then I found one more in the back room, and that several people were fighting over who would get it. Her picture doesn't show me dancing around a pole. It's supposed to depict me selling the last snow shovel we had at Home Depot. From now on, I will remember to check her homework more, okay? A great example of how we can misinterpret something that's taken out of its proper context, right? And so here's what we have to do. We have to take Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and we have to step back for a second and put it in the context of the book, right? And so when we look at the book, we actually find some more tension here. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 12... So the last chapter in Ecclesiastes, Solomon seems to refer to wisdom and knowledge in a very positive sense. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 9, and 10. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Now, that's, a, that's a, a very different take, isn't it? It's not the cynicism we see in chapter 1. It seems like, actually, the preacher, the speaker, the writer here, Solomon, pursued knowledge. He pursued wisdom. He taught knowledge and wisdom. In fact, when we go into even the larger context, so not just the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, but the context of Solomon's other writings, what do we find? Well, we find something like Proverbs chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, it says, take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Or Proverbs chapter 15, verse 14, the mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. And so what do we have? We have a very high view of wisdom and knowledge, don't we? We're actually, uh, Solomon in the Proverbs says, hey, these things are better than jewels. They're more valuable than jewels. So what's going on here? Are are we left with maybe a contradiction? Do we have a contradiction here in the Scriptures where Ecclesiastes says one thing in one place and then something else somewhere else and then other Scriptures contradict it? Well, no, we we have another option to look at. There is a second way that human beings often misunderstand or misinterpret communication. And the mistake, the second mistake that we often make is we misunderstand the genre. Now, genre is simply a category or type of literature or a type of a communication. So, for instance, let's illustrate this with a newspaper. Now, uh, for those of you who are 30 and under... If you don't know what a newspaper is, just look for someone with gray hair next to you. Elbow them and say, hey, could you tell me what a newspaper is? Right? But we used to have these things called newspapers. And newspapers would have headlines to various news stories. And you'll notice even on this headline here, you've got different sections of the newspaper. So you've got the national section, the world section, business, lifestyle, travel, technology, sports, weather. So you've got these different kinds of... uh, uh, genres even within a, the genre of newspaper. 
Now, let's illustrate how, we can, how, how genre is very important to understanding the meaning of language. So, let's take a headline. All right, let's say you were reading in the newspaper this headline, Penguins Put Panthers on Ice. Okay. Now, here is a possible interpretation to the headline, Penguins Put Panthers on Ice. Right? You might think, well, a group of aquatic flightless birds led a fairly large subspecies of the cat genus into the South Polar region, right? That's one possible interpretation of penguins put panthers on ice. But I'm guessing nobody here is probably, no one's mind was going that direction, right? You were thinking, okay, penguins put panthers on ice. Sounds like it comes from what section of the newspaper? Sports. Right? And the sports section is a particular kind of genre. And we know that in uh, sports headlines, uh, these kinds of things aren't taken necessarily literally, but this probably refers to uh, maybe an ice hockey team, the Penguins, uh, who beat the Panthers in a recent game. Or maybe you see a headline like this, Texans Massacre Vikings on Sunday. Right? Now, if you don't understand the, the, right, this is probably going to be in your sports section. If you don't understand genre, you might misinterpret this. You might think, okay, this probably refers to gun-toting residents in Texas who brutally slaughtered Scandinavian marauders on the first day of the week, okay? Now, that's a potential interpretation, isn't it? But we'd say it's an improper or a misinterpretation because we don't understand the genre of the sports page, the type of literature it is. And this is just saying that the Texans had, you know, destroyed the Vikings in a, uh, in a football game, okay? Here, I want to show off a little uh, Christmas present that my wife gave me. It's called the Official Dictionary of Sarcasm, all right? It might reveal a little bit about our family. Uh, they got this just a, a couple weeks ago during Christmas. And uh, in fact, um, it does tell you about our family. My, my wife and I, we've taken one of those tests about love languages and that kind of thing. And it came back that our primary love language in our family is actually sarcasm. So <laughs> this worked out well. Um, so, you know, you look at the, the dictionary. Now, if, if you were to mis in, uh, misunderstand what kind of dictionary this is, you might be confused, right? And so we've got a, a definition here, babysitter. A high school girl who has the mysterious ability to make your child, who, whenever you are, are around, never gives you a moment's peace, somehow sleep soundly for the entire time you are out at the movies, therefore getting paid anywhere from 20 to 50 bucks to essentially sit in your house and watch television until you come home. Okay? That's a babysitter, according to this dictionary. Uh, here's a cat. This is a definition of a cat, according to this dictionary. Cat. A creature for which you continue to provide food and shelter despite the fact that it hates you and wishes you were dead. <laughs> okay. Here's another word in the dictionary. Catheter. Catheter. No, I'm, I'm not actually going to read that one. I better, better stop while I'm ahead there. Okay. But the point is, if you were to take this as a regular dictionary, you might have a, a, a real difficult time understanding what's going on, right? And so there's a genre of sarcasm that helps us to understand the meaning of what's written in here. Okay, now, 
So, humorous way to illustrate an important point. When it comes to a passage of Scripture, not only do we look at the context, but we also have to look at the genre. And so, when it comes to Ecclesiastes, what kind of literature is this? We're talking about wisdom literature, right? And so the genre, the category of writing here, as we read Ecclesiastes, is wisdom literature. And when we look at wisdom literature... And we ask, okay, what is kind of characteristic about wisdom literature? What do we, what insights do we need about wisdom literature that help us understand what's being written? We discover that the, the, the primary contribution of wisdom literature is to directly or indirectly instruct us on how to make wise choices in the daily affairs of life and how also to properly view the overarching patterns of life. So there's a lot of practical wisdom that's given on how to live life. And then there's uh, an identification of various patterns. We see this in the wisdom literature. Now, sometimes people, Christians, will approach wisdom literature with the, the, the wrong understanding of what's being communicated. So, for instance, someone might read the Proverbs, which is also wisdom literature. They might take a passage like Proverbs 22.6. And Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And instead of taking this as general wisdom or wise principles or a general truth, we will misinterpret the genre and say, oh, this is a promise from God. This is a guarantee from God. So if I'm just faithful with my child and I raise them the right way, even if they've veered off when they get a little bit older, I can hold on to that promise that they're going to come back because God has promised that when he is old, he will not depart from it. And you see the misinterpretation that would take place if someone doesn't understand wisdom literature. This is, in wisdom literature, we don't have guarantees. We don't have promises. Instead, we have general principles of wise living. And so, uh, this is actually in a tremendous, a tremendous gift from God, wisdom literature. The Bible would be incomplete without wisdom literature. Uh, there's a, a, a saying that goes like this. Most people, most people will say, oh well, live and learn. Wisdom says, know well, learn and live. See how it reverses the order. And see, God gives us wisdom. He gives us the wisdom literature. He gives us the books of wisdom so that we don't have to learn the hard way. That's a gift. Experience doesn't have to be our teacher. Because often experience is the more difficult teacher, isn't it? I remember uh, a conversation with my uh, oldest daughter when she was in high school. And we had been through kind of a period where we felt like we were constantly trying to protect her from herself and trying to keep her from making some really poor decisions. And I'm trying to narrate this for her. I'm saying, honey, look, I, I, can't, I see down the road. I see where you know, things are headed. I see where this decision is headed. I'm trying to protect you. And after a, a number of these kind of conversations, I remember she looked at me and trying to convince me, she said, Dad, I, well, I just learned best by experiencing things for myself. Right? And that was hard to hear as a dad. 
Because we have an entire section. We have several books of Scripture that say you don't have to do that. You don't have to learn for yourself. You can learn from wisdom. And that's what wisdom literature, uh, the huge value of it. And so you have books like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon that all fall into this wisdom literature category. So, uh, of course, they're they're arranged differently. Job addresses a particular topic, primarily the, the problem of evil and suffering. Proverbs has a lot of just general wisdom and principles. But Ecclesiastes, we look at Ecclesiastes, and, uh, and we have a, a 12 chapters that are all related to kind of the same theme here. And I think the key to understanding uh, the, the, the genre and the context of Ecclesiastes is by looking at really the bookends here, uh, the bookends of the book. And so if you, th- you think about a bookend, right, bookends that hold books, and the bookends hold everything in between them together. And so what we see is this preface that Solomon writes in chapter 1, and then a conclusion that he comes to in chapter 12. And so if you look in your Bibles at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, here's what we read. This is the preface to the book, right? He's setting the whole book up, and he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And so here's the cynicism, right? He sets the book up with cynicism. What's the point? It's all vanity. What's the point of life? It's all vanity. Right? And that's the question that we're asking in this series. In Ecclesiastes, what's the point? He starts off by telling us the point is it's all vanity. And then he goes on for these 12 chapters to kind of lay this out, looking at the different activities that are possible for us to endeavor as human beings. And so when you look at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, this preacher Solomon is searching for the key to life but he can't find it under the sun. In fact, we see a couple of phrases in this book repeated again and again. The phrase is, or uh, is vanity, or all is vanity, uh, in the New American Standard is repeated 15 times throughout this book. The phrase under the sun is mentioned 27 times. Now you put those together, what do you have? All is vanity under the sun. And I think the point that Solomon is making here is that all is vanity under the sun if all that exists is all that is under the sun. Right? So when we look into life, if this is all we see, all this striving after work and pleasure and wisdom and knowledge, if all we see is all there is, at the end of the day, it's all meaningless. That's the point. That's what he's saying, and he prefaces with this. All is vanity. All is striving after the wind. All human endeavor is meaningless. But that, that's not the conclusion, right? That's the preface. All human endeavor is meaningless apart from God. Apart from God. 
Now, thankfully, that's, the, 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 that's not the, the, the conclusion. That's not the end of the book, right? Because then we have uh, the conclusion in chapter 12. And so, there is no point if there is no God, but thankfully, Solomon tidies things up. He, he wraps it up in Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes chapter 12, right? And he says, no, there is a God, and therefore, here's his conclusion. Here's the second bookend that's holding this all together. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so the conclusion isn't that it's all meaningless. The conclusion is that it's all meaningless apart from God, but God does exist. He is real, and therefore, therefore, life is filled with meaning. Life is uh, meant to be lived in obedience and service to God. And so, if there is no God, there's no transcendent purpose, right? Right? But if there is a God, there is a a, a source now from which we can get transcendent purpose. It's not just you or me making it up on our own. There is a God who has imbued this world with purpose and meaning. And so, now let's take this back to to, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So, what is the implication then for the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge? Well, here it is. Do not pursue wisdom and knowledge apart from God. Right? That's the, 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 one of the, the key messages in Ecclesiastes. Wisdom and knowledge apart from God is striving after the wind. It's wearisome. So don't pursue wisdom and knowledge apart from God. In fact, what you see Solomon do is he connects wisdom and knowledge to God regularly in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. Solomon writes, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. In Proverbs nine ten, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Right? And so, uh, here are the, the, the key implications, two that I want to highlight as we, as we kind of wrap this up. Here's the first implication for us. Number one, God's existence provides the foundation for wisdom and knowledge. God's existence provides the foundation for wisdom and knowledge. Philosophers would say something like, a God, God's existence, provides the ontological grounding, which just means that the existence of wisdom and knowledge uh, is best explained by the fact that you have a rational God who exists. Think about it. We have rational minds that can think and that can reason. What kind of source would we have to have to give rise to a rational mind, right? A, A rational mind must come from a rational source, A mind must come from a divine mind. Human minds must come from a divine mind. It doesn't seem to me that lifeless, non-rational matter is enough to give us rationality and rational minds. Think about moral knowledge. 
God's existence provides the foundation for wisdom and moral knowledge, right? Moral knowledge is possible because there are moral facts, and there are moral facts because of the nature of the moral lawgiver, the God who exists, who is good in and of himself. And so here's the key insight. Knowledge is grounded and finds its foundation in God himself. God, knowledge starts with God. And so therefore, think about this. Therefore, the greatest area of knowledge that you and I can pursue is the knowledge of God. There is no greater study than the knowledge of God. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says this, he says, He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Do we talk about the knowledge of God like that anymore? In our community of believers, in our small groups, in our Sunday school classes, when we talk about the knowledge of God, is that our posture? As we talk to our kids and we talk about their education and their schooling, do they, is it clear to them that above every other subject we value in our homes, the knowledge of God takes priority over all of them? Here's a second uh, uh, implication, I think. So Solomon isn't dismissing knowledge. He's saying, no, we need to properly view knowledge and wisdom from their source. But then if, God's exi- if God exists, he is, his existence is going to be the proper lens through which we view all of reality. Right? It's going to be the proper lens through which we view all of reality. The idea is that God's existence... And his truth will then provide for us the proper worldview through which to see the rest of the world and interpret all of reality. Now, think about the idea of a worldview. What is a worldview? Let's define worldview for a second here. Uh, There's a a great worldview book called The Universe Next Door by James Sire, a former scholar. Here's how he defines worldview. He says a worldview is a commitment... A fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold, consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Now, I think that's a really great definition of uh, worldview, but you're saying, what, what did he even say there? Okay, how about a definition for normal people like us? All right. Basically, what he's saying is that a worldview is simply your picture of reality. That's what a worldview is. It's your, it's your picture of reality. The worldview is like the lenses uh, on a pair of glasses. And you see the world through those lenses. And that it informs how you interpret all the stuff of life. It's your picture of reality. And so, the implication here is if knowledge is grounded in God, 
If God exists and all of reality comes from Him, He's a source of all truth and reality and knowledge, then we ought to view the world through our, our, our Christian faith, through the truth claims of Christianity. And so here's the implication. When you look at other aspects of reality, how does your Christianity inform it? How does your Christianity give you wisdom and knowledge when it comes to something like business? And I'm not, I'm not talking about simply, uh, you know, being ethical, right? Of course we should be ethical in our business dealings. Uh, I'm not talking about the, the businessman who maybe gathers other businessmen together for like a prayer breakfast. That's good and that's important. No, I'm, I'm talking about the enterprise of business itself. The work of business, the day in, the day out of maybe customer service or creating products and distributing those things. How does your Christianity inform the knowledge you have about that area and the wisdom with which you interact in business? How does Christianity inform your view of business? How does your Christianity inform your view of education and give you wisdom about education? What, here, here's a question that may, maybe many of us haven't even asked. What is a Christian view of education? Is there a Christian view of education? Or have we simply borrowed the lenses of the culture when it comes to education? And at the end of the day, education is simply about academic achievement. Or is education in the Christian view of things something so much deeper than academic achievement, right? And how then do we communicate that kind of knowledge and wisdom to our kids? So, for instance, do we tell our kids, hey, we would be much more satisfied with you. Uh, if, not if you go to, go to the best school, you go to an Ivy League school, maybe you go get your MBA at Harvard, become a successful uh, scholar or businessman or businesswoman, but if your soul is corrupt and you've walked away from the Lord, we're not satisfied with that. In fact, we'd be more satisfied educationally if you never went to college, but you love Jesus with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when we're working at maybe the local convenience store, that would be actually fit more into a Christian view of education. Do we have a Christian view of politics? How does our Christianity inform our views, our knowledge and wisdom about parenting? In fact, think about this. Where do you go first for parenting advice? Young moms, where do you go first for parenting advice? Do you Google it? Right? Do you go right to the internet? Or do you go to Scripture? Or do you find maybe an older, wiser parent in the congregation how does Christianity inform your view of history? How does Christianity inform your view of psychology? How does Christianity inform your view of technology? Do we have a theology of technology? How do our convictions about God inform how we think about something so pervasive and omnipresent in our culture as technology? At the end of the day, do we think that the Bible gives us knowledge, not just of faith, but of reality? 
is, our, is Christian truth knowledge of reality? Well, if the source is God Himself, the creator of all reality, then His Word should give us not just faith convictions, but knowledge of reality. And so, therefore, I think the implication is that we think biblically about every single area of life. In fact, Abraham Kuyper, who's a Dutch theologian, summarizes all of this this way. Uh, What is a Christian worldview? This is a great picture of a Christian worldview and how wisdom and knowledge come together. Kuyper said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. That's a Christian worldview, that every square inch of reality belongs to God. And so therefore, our world is filled with the knowledge of God. There is so much we can learn about the wisdom of God. Those are huge implications. So, Solomon in Ecclesiastes is not dismissing the, the, the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. He's not dismissing our work and our play. He's saying those things are all meaningless if there is no God. Apart from God, when you divorce those things from God, you will find striving after the wind. But when you and I reconnect our pursuit of knowledge and wisdom with God, uh, then we will find life transformation. Let me give you a couple resources, and I want to close with one last scripture. For those of you who want to continue in growing, because it's a lifelong pursuit, I want to encourage you to get familiar with our organization, Maven. You can go to maventruth.com. We've got a little resource table out out in the lobby that has some resources, uh, a book I co-wrote with um, John Stone Street that really kind of unpacks this a little bit more, uh, is out in the, the lobby. It's called A Practical Guide to Culture. I encourage you to check out and come visit us at the table. Well, I don't want you to walk out of here, though, being tempted to think that this is merely an academic pursuit, right? Uh, because when you read through the wisdom literature that Solomon writes, it's not simply about knowing facts. Right? In fact, we, we could define knowledge as knowing the facts about reality. And wisdom could be the, the, uh, the, the rightful application of that knowledge to life and to living. And so we don't just want knowledge, right? You can certainly have a lot of knowledge and not have wisdom. However, you can't have wisdom without knowledge. And this is a pursuit where we bring together the head and the heart and the hands, the head and the mind. And this is what Paul says in Romans 12 too. Knowledge and wisdom are transformative things. Paul says this in Romans 12 too. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. By what? By the renewing of your mind with the knowledge of God and His wisdom. Let's pray. And let's ask God to help us in that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather as the body of Christ to to worship you, the one true God, to give glory and honor to your name. 
And thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come and to study your word. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would cultivate in this body a deep love of wisdom and knowledge. And at the same time, Lord, help us to see our blind spots where we have disconnected the knowledge of reality from your existence. Lord, help us to reconnect those things. Help us to develop a full and robust biblical worldview where we see every aspect of reality through your truth. And take that truth, Lord, and transform us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.